Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 50, The Byzantine Golden Age, Change of Heart. We left off the last episode with the revelation that Constantine was going to take back the throne. While attending an unveiling of a holy relic, an audience member stood up and shouted to the people, Constantine, take back your throne. It was already determined the story was fabricated for dramatic effect, but it also helped start this episode. For Constantine VII was indeed ready to take back the throne just as Romanus was going through a personal, spiritual struggle. Everything he had done to secure his place as senior emperor was eating him alive. He struggled with the bad decisions he made over his career, such as abandoning the army to their deaths, then overthrowing the government. When his eldest son died, it made him question his life and wonder if God was punishing him. This led Romanus to question the very state of his soul, and whether or not he would make it into the pearly gates of heaven. Romanus dedicated the last years of his life to self-reflection and atonement. He observed Constantine's behavior and compared it to his two surviving sons. While Constantine was writing books on agriculture, the administrations of the empire, and philosophy and history, his two sons were drinking and parting. They were spoiled little brats who knew nothing of leadership. Yet there they were in line to inherit the throne. This just was not right. In 944 CE, while Romanus planned out his final acts to secure a place in heaven for his soul, the Kievan Rus returned to the mouth of the Danube. This was the worst possible time for Romanus, so he sent an ambassador to the Danube to make whatever deal he needed to make in order to secure peace. And it worked. The Kievan Rus were granted all kinds of concessions, like the freedom to travel to the capital. Crisis averted. Around the same time, the Pechenegs came down to raid, and Romanus paid them off. The Pechenegs took their Byzantine gold and raided into Bulgaria instead. Again, the crisis was averted. Without any chance of war on his western frontier, Romanus passed a series of laws and edicts to prove to the world he was a good Christian. He cancelled all debts, lowered the taxes for the poor, and increased them for the aristocracy. This seems like a good Christian law to us. Next, he passed an edict that forced Jews to convert to Greek orthodoxy or be driven from the empire. This seems like a bad Christian law to us. He passed these laws because he felt it would help his soul on the day of judgment. Finally, Emperor Romanus gave a speech, reciting his final edict. His successor to the throne... Everyone expected it to go to one of his two sons, but Romanus chose Constantine VII instead. After serious deliberations, he concluded that his sons were not fit for the purple. But Constantine was in every way. This speech really shocked the people, especially Romanus's two sons.
In December 944 CE, Stephen and Constantine, the two sons of Romanus, arrested their father and declared the empire theirs. Either they had no real concept of what it took to usurp the throne, or they really thought all they had to do was declare the imperial throne theirs, and everyone would just listen to them. Constantine VII was arrested and placed in a tower. This was too much. The people were angry, and they gathered in the streets and shouted their discontent. Mobs formed in Constantinople, and soon rioters marched on the imperial palace. They shouted for Constantine. Every minute that went by, the crowds grew larger and more dangerous. They shouted to see the rightful emperor. Rumors spread that the young emperor was blinded or murdered, which only enraged the crowds further. The two emperors looked down at the angry crowds and realized they were surrounded on all sides. The people wanted their heads, and there was nothing they could do to calm them down aside from stepping aside and giving the throne to Constantine. That is exactly what they did. They brought Constantine to the balcony and showed the people that he was alive, healthy, and unharmed. When the people saw Emperor Constantine VII, they erupted into cheers and applause. It was at that moment the people and the guards and even the emperors understood who had the real power. While Romanus' two sons tried to think of a way to seize power and not get murdered by an angry mob, it was the daughter of Romanus who acted first. Helena, who was Constantine's wife, told her husband he had all the power and support. If he were to act, the people would support him. On January 27th, 945 CE. Constantine VII deposed his two brothers-in-law and became the sole ruler of the empire. At the age of 39, he finally had what was his birthright. The reason we know so much about the forms and ceremonies of the Byzantine court is because Constantine documented every single detail. He wrote exactly how every royal court was to govern itself, right down to the specific words they were to utter. He wrote exactly how every opening ceremony was to go for the chariot races between the blues and the greens. And he even wrote a complete history of his grandfather, Basil I. It is from Constantine's writings that we truly understand the character of Basil. Constantine wrote a book that described the individual themes, or provinces, of the Byzantine Empire. It was a very detailed text that explains how each province within the empire functioned. He basically wrote a manual for future emperors. Having survived coup after coup, Constantine knew he had to get rid of anyone around him who wasn't loyal. This meant getting rid of some qualified individuals, including the highly liked, highly successful general in the east, John Kirkeros. Even though the man he replaced him with was less qualified and cost the Romans a lot of ground in the east, it was safer to prevent a full mutiny. Besides, after a few years, the new general in the east found his footing and was able to hold on to some territory. The growing disparity between the rich aristocrats and the poor free peasants was growing wider. Even though Romanus passed a law to address this issue, he had no idea what was going on in the first place, so his law did nothing to help. But Constantine was smart. 
He knew what was happening, and he knew how to fix it. First, he restored all land purchased from free peasants during his reign. And this may have angered the powerful class, but it stabilized the lower and middle classes. And this strengthened the economy and stabilized the tax income. He also created a system that appraised the value of land so aristocrats couldn't lowball peasants to scoop up more property. In 949 CE, Emperor Constantine looked at the report of his vessels lost to pirates and realized their trade routes were very dangerous around the island of Crete. If you know anything about Greek geography, it's that Crete basically blocks the southern passage of the Aegean Sea. Crete was home to an emirate that pirated every ship it could get its hands on. This was a big problem for the empire's stability and bottom line. So Emperor Constantine wrote King Otto I of East Francia as well as the Abbasid Caliph in Syria. His request was simple. If we take out this group of pirates in the Emirate of Crete, all three superpowers will make more money in trade. Now doesn't that sound nice? More money? Stability? What do they have to lose? Emperor Constantine was happy with the talks and gathered his army and sent them to Crete. Unfortunately, when they got there, they were all alone. Where were the Germans? Where were the Arabs? Nowhere to be seen. It was just the Byzantines. And they didn't do so well on their own. Either their morale was low, or they just couldn't compete with the Emirate forces. The Byzantines were defeated and forced to retreat in disgrace. This was a defining moment for Constantine, for he wrote about it in his manual for his son. Do not go to war if you don't have to. A lesson he had to learn the hard way, but one he would pass on to his descendants. In the 950s, the fighting in the east took a turn for the worst. The new general lost several battles against the Persian general Saif al-Dalwa. It looked like their gains were about to be taken away when the general in charge was wounded and his son was forced to take his position. This young man was named Nikephorus Phocas. That's right. This is the grandson of Leo Phocas, the usurper whose eyes were burned out only a few decades earlier. Nikephorus was a skilled general and managed to retake all of the lands lost by his father. This, combined with the conquests in the north, meant the Byzantine Empire was now at the Euphrates River. However, the Byzantine-controlled land in Italy was starting to fall apart. There weren't enough resources to hold on to and govern the Italian peninsula. That, coupled with the endless raids from the Sicilian Arabs, meant sooner or later they were going to lose Italy. Constantine knew he had to find allies in Europe to hold on to the Christian lands of Italy. So he reached out to the up-and-coming king in East Francia, Otto I. There was something special about this German that Constantine recognized. Constantine recognized that the key to success wasn't assembling armies and killing your neighbors and taking their stuff. Yeah, that paid off in the short term, if you were successful. But it wasn't sustainable in the long run. The key to success was diplomacy. And Constantine excelled at the art of diplomacy. One written account of Constantine's court 
came from a visitor in Italy. He talked about mechanical statues of lions in the throne room that roared at his guests. The marvel impressed his guests before the true negotiations took place. People were impressed with what they saw in Constantinople. There was nothing else like it in Europe at the time. These were stinky barbarians who pooped on the ground that came to the palace and saw amazing buildings and palaces with aqueducts and heated pools with mechanical birds and lions in the court. Going from Central Europe to Constantinople, especially, specifically the emperor's court, it was like traveling to the future. Everyone who saw it couldn't stop talking about it, and those who never went doubted the stories. In 957 CE, the widowed queen of Kievan Rus came to Constantinople to be baptized as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. This was the first step in bringing Orthodox Christianity to the modern-day Russians. Constantine's firstborn son, Romanus, was being groomed to take over the empire. At this point, it was well known that the next generation of emperors must be well-versed in the day-to-day administration as well as foreign matters. Constantine even went as far as arranging a marriage between Romanus II and the daughter of King Otto I of East Francia. This is a very interesting echo through time. Once again, we have the future Roman emperor betrothed to the daughter of a great German king about to be crowned emperor. However, Romanus didn't like this arrangement one bit and called the entire thing off in 958 CE. On November 9, 959 CE, Emperor Constantine VII, only 54 years old, passed away. He was one of the best emperors the Byzantines had ever known, and his early passing was a tragedy. There were some who thought he was poisoned. After all, he was only 54 years old. But it's important to remember how many times Constantine survived his own usurpation because everyone thought he was going to die on his own. He was known for being sickly and near death his entire youth. And in his later years, he was known as a fat and weak man. So it's very possible he just kicked a bucket. After all these years, he was finally gone. And now his son Romanus II was emperor. He was trained for this his entire life. Romanus wasn't just an educated emperor who was trained for this very moment. He was also, he also had a son and heir to the empire. The first three years of Romanus's rule were some of the best years of the empire. He was married to the most beautiful woman, a bride he chose himself, not some arranged marriage with a princess from far, far away who couldn't speak his language. Romanus's bride was the daughter of an innkeeper from the Peloponnese. One thing Romanus II did that his father told him explicitly not to do was go to war. And he didn't go to war with just any local power, but the exact power his father had tried to conquer and failed miserably. That's right, Romanus mustered up a large army and attacked the pirate emirate of Crete. And in order to make sure things went smoothly, he recalled General Nicephorus Phocas from the Eastern Front. This proved to be a very bitter and difficult war to wage. The terrain of Crete was rough and hostile to attackers. 
But Nicephorus Phocas was determined to take the island, and after a long siege, finally conquered the island in 961 CE. It was such a big deal that when word made it to the capital, people celebrated all night long. After securing Crete for the empire, Nicephorus was sent back to the east where he won several more victories for the empire and captured several caches of gold and silver. Everything was looking great for the emperor and the empire. Unfortunately, things didn't continue this way for long. Romanus II went on a long hunting expedition and contracted an illness. He quickly died after falling ill, leaving three small children to his widow Theophano. Theophano was just a young widow who up until a few years before was the daughter of an innkeeper. Now she was regent over three small heirs to the Roman Empire. This was a lot of pressure to rest on one woman from a humble background. She was vulnerable, and anyone with ambition, seeking power, would look at this as an opportunity. During this turbulent time, General Nicephorus Phocas returned to the capital. He was already in Cappadocia when he heard the news. His emperor was dead. Time was of the essence. He sailed across the Bosphorus, landing in the ports of Constantinople, and made his way straight for the palace. It is here that General Nicephorus found the widow Theophano with the patriarch and the eunuch Bringus. They all agreed a regency was needed before the heir was old enough to rule. So they all agreed to watch out for the heir and pledge allegiance. Nicephorus Phocas pledged his loyalty to Theophano and her son, as did the patriarch, as well as the eunuch Joseph Bringas. Joseph Bringas knew all the workings of the empire, as he was the one in charge when the late emperor chose to go hunting instead of governing. These were the most important people in the capital. Nicephorus controlled the army, the patriarch controlled the faith, and the eunuch Bringas controlled the state. Guess which one broke the agreement first? It was Nicephorus. He marched his army to the Bosphorus, and from the other side of the water, Nicephorus had a close view of Constantinople. But he was still on the wrong side of the water. Meanwhile in the city, the eunuch Bringas was having trouble keeping the peace. The Phocas family was stirring up trouble, turning the people against the eunuch. Nicephorus's brother Leo and father Bardas were rallying people to support General Nicephorus and his soldiers crossing the Bosphorus, to take control of the city. When Bringas tried to arrest the Phocas men, Leo escaped while his elderly father took sanctuary in the Hagia Sophia. The patriarch granted Bardas his sanctuary, which angered the eunuch Bringas even more. When Bringas's henchmen tried to forcibly remove Bardas in the middle of a church service, the mob grew angry and pelted the henchmen with rocks until he died. I just thought about it. How did they get rocks in the middle of church? Immediately after the stoning, Leo Phocas returned to the city with his men and took control of Constantinople, while his brother Nicephorus crossed the Bosphorus with his army. They freed their father from the Hagia Sophia, and from there they marched to the royal palace. General Nicephorus Phocas married the widow 
Empress Theophano, and was crowned Emperor of the Empire by the Patriarch. Just like that, the Focas family had seized control of the Empire. Now, if you remember from the previous episode, it was Nikephorus' grandfather who was blinded and executed by Romanus I's guards. So, as a final act of justice, Nikephorus Focas crowned his father as Caesar. Now, this didn't start out as a usurpation. Nikephorus was just the legal guardian of the two emperor boys. His focus, pun intended, was the conquests in the east. And now that he was the emperor, he had complete control of the imperial resources. With the entire army at his disposal, Emperor Nikephorus Phocas marched on the city of Aleppo. He had already weakened it years before, and now he was here to deal the final blow. This had once been a great Roman city, and the fact that it was once a great Roman city made the conquest even better for Nikephorus. News spread back to the capital, and everybody celebrated. They were reclaiming the cities that were taken from them during the Arab conquests. The conquest of Aleppo had an equal reaction in the Muslim world. Only instead of news spreading across the land and everyone cheering and celebrating, they were frightened and angry. The caliphate had long ago broken up into many different emirates, and the cohesion went with it. But no one cared too much because the borders between the Roman Empire and the Muslim world had been stagnant. Now they were retreating. The threat was real, and people felt it everywhere throughout the Muslim world. Back in Constantinople, Emperor Nikephorus celebrated his victories. He was a very popular emperor at first. The people loved him for his victories, and so did the military. Everybody loves a winner, but his friends from the army were expecting something extra. For the longest time, Generals were able to plunder and tax the lands they conquered, making them filthy rich at the expense of the empire. But recently, that tradition had been expunged from the imperial tradition, and for some reason, the generals were expecting this new law to be thrown out. Emperor Nikephorus hated two things. The church for hoarding land and wealth without paying any taxes, and rich landowners who taxed people living on their land but then refused to pay their fair share to the empire. First, he put restrictions on the church donations to prevent them from hoarding wealth. Second, he kept the tax code strict and equally spread out among all in the empire. The second move upset a lot of people in the aristocracy. When the emperor's military friends came up and asked him to get rid of the law requiring them to pay taxes, Nikephorus refused. It was important for the stability and longevity of the empire for all of, it, all of its subjects to pay a fair and balanced tax rate. This would keep the empire financed, the soldiers paid, the streets cared for, and business to carry on as usual. If the rich and elite can avoid paying their fair share of taxes and the burden rests solely on the poor and the peasant, then stability would crumble and fuel unrest, which would lead to an economic collapse. 
Emperor Nicephorus was wise enough to realize he couldn't let his friends in the army siphon taxes from their newly conquered lands and keep them for themselves. So Emperor Nicephorus' powerful friends within the army quickly ceased to be his friends. After instituting these strict but fair laws, the aristocrats voiced their opinions. Now, it's not like they were being punished or oppressed in any way. They were just paying what they had always owed, and for some reason were able to get away with it before. And one of the ways aristocrats would voice their concern was to shout at the emperor their grievances as he walked through the streets. Sometimes they would shout themselves, but most times they would pay poor people to shout for them. And this was a common tradition in the empire and had gone back for centuries. Usually the emperor would hear the concerns, ignore the person shouting, and then decide whether to address the concern in private. But Nicephorus was not a traditional emperor. He did not take shit from anyone. When he heard the complaints shouted at him, he stopped and he sent his guards and sought out the vocal men. They were violently seized and dragged off to prison. It didn't matter the status of the complainant, they were all dealt with harshly. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This did not go too well. In fact, you could say it soured the view of the new emperor. Imagine if a sitting president heard a citizen shout out a complaint during a photo op and the Secret Service grabbed the individual and made them disappear forever. People were upset, and it only got worse, because the worse things got, the more people complained, and then the worse things got. Nikephorus knew his popularity was plummeting. Nobody likes to be hated, especially after he had just experienced a moment where everyone in the empire loved him. This next section is a little paraphrase, but it gives a detailed account of what happened next, with a little flair. Emperor Nikephorus Phocas decided to show off his personal strengths to his subjects. After all, Nikephorus was a general, a military man. What better way of showing the people how great you are than by displaying your military prowess? He called for an assembly in the Hippodrome. He had something special to show everyone. As a stadium filled with people, the emperor looked down from his private booth. He was very excited. He was going to show the people the best damn military parade anyone had ever seen before. The people used to love him before and surely they were going to love him again. But he had to make sure he was very professional, otherwise the people wouldn't be impressed. And to make it even more impressive for the audience, Emperor Nikephorus never told anyone that this was a military parade. It was going to be the greatest performance of his career. As the crowd gathered around, wondering what it was they were going to see, they looked up at the emperor's private booth and watched him look down upon them. No one in the audience knew what was happening. 
Where were the blues and the greens? Was this not another chariot race? People were getting suspicious. What did this new general emperor have in store? As people talked back and forth, watching and waiting for the chariot races to begin, the emperor stood up, walked forward, and shouted to the crowds. Surely the whispers and conversations must have touched upon the old legend of the Nico riots, when Justinian brought his soldiers into the stadium and massacred 30,000 people. But this couldn't be happening now, could it? If the crowd was uneasy before, it surely was uneasy after the emperor shouted his commands and the military marched into the Hippodrome. They were in perfect military formation, as if marching into a real battle. The emperor shouted commands to the officers, who shouted commands to their soldiers, and in unison they performed their drills. Emperor Nicephorus was proud and amazed by his soldiers' discipline, and for a moment, he probably thought things were going great. But the crowd was very uneasy as the soldiers marched out, and as soon as they performed their drills, someone must have stood up and shouted, They're going to kill us all! Because the crowd erupted into chaos. Everyone panicked and ran over their seats, trampling their neighbors as they rushed for the exits. The shouting soldiers only made it worse. Emperor Nicephorus was horrified. His parade was ruined, and now his subjects were trampling each other, trying to escape the Hippodrome. The panic turned into riots, and many people were trampled to death. So it turned out a military parade was a bad idea. People got really mad at him and blamed him for all the trampled fatalities. And instead of dealing with his shattered reputation at home, he decided to build a wall around the palace instead, and then just focus his attention on the frontier. His strength was on the battlefield, after all. Nikephorus' army marched further east and launched several raids into Syria. They besieged the city of Antioch, a famous Greek city that fell to the Arabs during the Muslim conquest. The siege was a success, and Antioch returned to the Roman Empire after many years of foreign rule. There were many Orthodox Christians within Antioch, and they were not under the diocese of the Patriarch. They were under the Patriarch of Syria and lived under Arab rule for hundreds of years. Everyone spoke Arabic, even the Christians. Despite being of a different culture, the Patriarch of Syria had a huge favor to ask of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Get my people out of here. With all these successive raids into the east, taking back the land and cities that once belonged to them, the Muslims started to react. The Christian lands they had conquered contained a lot of Christian populations that lived within. After all, Egypt, Palestine, and Syria were all part of the Christian world when the Arabs conquered the world. Not everyone the Arabs conquered converted to Islam. In fact, the Arabs liked they didn't convert to Islam because they had to pay a Christian tax and a Jewish tax and a Zoroastrian tax. But with all the Christian victories in the north, the Muslim populations grew angry. And when they grew angry, they formed mobs. 
mobs in cities far away from the actual fighting. And these mobs turned their anger against average Christian citizens living within the caliphate. Muslim violence against their Christian populations grew to an all-time high. In 966 CE, a mob of angry Muslims stormed the church in Jerusalem and dragged the patriarch out into the streets. You heard right, there was still a patriarch in Jerusalem. At least there was right up until this point. They dragged him into the streets, kicked him, beat him, threw rocks at him, and then set him on fire and watched him burn to death in the streets. Nicephorus Phocas was an emperor with many enemies, which is funny because he started out so loved and appreciated. But one move he made that sealed his fate was how he treated the commander who liberated Antioch. Because the commander who liberated the city of Antioch technically did so while disobeying orders, the emperor decided to punish him instead of rewarding him. The emperor didn't like the fact that his commander disobeyed a direct order, even though it resulted in a huge victory for the empire. So to make a point, he stripped the commander of all titles and publicly shamed him. The plot to assassinate Phocas came immediately after. The assassins made their move at night. They crossed the calm waters of the Bosphorus to the walls of the royal palace. Looking up at the huge stone wall, there was no way to get to the emperor's chambers. But they had a secret plan. Someone on top of the palace threw a rope over the side of the wall, landing on the ground below. And because this was a tall wall, with only a few windows without sills overlooking the water, there weren't any guards watching it at night. The man at the top lowered the rope and the men at the bottom attached a basket-like device. And together, the men... Together, the men at the bottom and the top pulled on the ropes, which raised the assassins up the side of the palace wall. It all happened very slowly and very quietly, and it took some time to organize. But as the assassins made it to the window, looking into the emperor's chambers... They saw him. Emperor Nicephorus Phocas laid on a rug, unguarded and unarmed. The men jumped through the window and plunged their steel swords through the emperor's body until he bled out on the carpet. The emperor was dead. But who was it that assassinated Nicephorus? The emperor had many enemies. But ultimately, it was his nephew, John Simiskes, who took the throne. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.